friends, do you realize how much God loves you? Are you awestruck at the idea that the God who created the universe, all of the heavens and the stars and the earth has known you intimately <clears throat> from before your birth? Is the idea of that beyond your imagination or capacity to fathom, as the psalmist says. I hope so. And we start here today because over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at some big questions. Why questions that perhaps you have pondered one or more of them over the course of your lifetime. Perhaps just in the last year or two, one or more of these questions has popped up for you as something that you have wrestled with because it's been some interesting times. <clears throat> and here we are. And I wanted to start with that video this morning first as kind of a, a grounding place for us so that as we look for answers to important questions, Always at the foundation is the knowledge, the assurance that there is nothing that we can do to diminish or to increase God's love for us. It is there in all things and in all times and in all circumstances. And because of that love, then we can be free to ask questions in a way that as we're wrestling, we can always come back to that foundational knowledge. So we're going to start today with the question that you see on the screens, why am I here? Anybody asked that question before? Why? I know you have, whether you raise your hand or not, I know you've asked that question in your life before. Why am I here? What, what is my purpose? What, what, where do I find meaning in life? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? And so in looking at that question today, I want us to take a look at <clears throat> some verses from the Gospel of Matthew. Now these are found in what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' um, message that he shares in the Gospel of Matthew that we hear in chapters 5, 6, and 7. These particular verses come from the fifth chapter, so follow along as I read them for us this morning. You are the salt of the earth, <clears throat> but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> this is the word of God for the people of God and God's people say, thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit and breathe life into the words that I speak that they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives this morning. Amen. <clears throat> I remember the day during our son Sid's eighth grade year 
when he came home with some paperwork that needed to be filled out in preparation for going to high school the next fall. In that paperwork, one of the things that was being asked of Sid was to decide which of the four vocational tracks that were available at that high school he would choose to follow. Sid, my 13-year-old son, being asked to choose a vocational track for his life. Around that same time, Sid was also playing travel basketball. And there were some kids that were really talented uh, that he played on a team with and that he played against, especially when they got to the state tournament. And one of the things that I noticed at the state tournament was that there were college coaches there to talk to these eighth grade boys to start making an impression on them and get them to commit as eighth graders verbally to come to their school later on, 13 and 14 year old boys. Now, remember, science has uh, informed us that our young people, their frontal lobe is not fully formed until they're about 25. But in middle school, they are being expected to make monumental decisions about life. And then there's the information that comes to us through research and and sources of of, uh, research. The pressure starts early for our kids, for us, to make up our minds about big things. Choose a major. Not, not just before you get to college, but choose a vocational track that might then point you in the direction of a major when you're, when you're a young adolescent. And yet, what we know is that about 30% of all, all college students will change their major at some point while they're in school. Choose a career path early on. And yet, research shows that on average, people will hold 12 different jobs during their adult life. Recent research from the company Zipia says that 91% of millennials responded to a survey indicating that they expect to change jobs every three years. 58% of adults in that same survey of all ages indicated that they have at some time wanted to change careers but we're afraid of the risk. And a third of the people responding to the survey just in the past year had contemplated a job change. And yet we're telling our kids to make decisions before they're, big decisions before they're even out of middle school. A couple of years ago, the Philadelphia Inquirer ran an article entitled, Let's stop stressing out our kids about, with career choice pressure. Now, one of the issues with all of this is an implicit message that is embedded into the push to make these kinds of decisions or to prove oneself in such a way that, they have, that we have an opportunity to make big decisions and choices. And the message is this that our value, our worth, is based on what we do, about what we can do, about how we can perform. 
And some of you know all too well that that is a message that you can end up carrying with you throughout your adult life and it can gnaw at you time and time again. And it has impacted you across many, many years, some of you. Which is why this morning, the starting point for us was reading, seeing those words again from Psalm 139. Because we need to remember the good news that precedes all of our attempts to make sense or meaning out of life or to find purpose or direction. And that good news is that God is with you and for you and God loves you with an unimaginable, uncontainable, indescribable, indefatigable love in all times and all circumstances. And it was there from the time you were being formed in the womb and it will still be there after you breathe your very last in this life. Harold Kushner, perhaps best known for the book that he wrote a number of years ago entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People, uh, has written a number of books over the years. Um, more recently, he wrote a book entitled Living a Life That Matters. And he, in writing that book, he talks about the many experiences he has had offering pastoral care and counseling to persons. Um, and particularly as people are approaching the end of life, having these deep conversations with them about the lives that they have lived. And from all of that experience, Kushner says this, most people are not afraid of dying. They are afraid of not having lived. It's that gnawing feeling that we will get to the end and wonder what did it all matter? Or perhaps the question that gnaws at some is, did I do enough? I hear that question sometimes as someone is approaching death. Did I do enough? Did I achieve enough? How, what, how, how did my life have meaning? And so often, those fears, those anxieties are connected to what were they able to do in their profession or in their career or in their job. So there's this word that sometimes gets used just as a substitute for career or profession or job. It's the word vocation. But I want us to look at that word today and I hope and pray that we will all walk out thinking of that word in much deeper terms than what it is that we do uh, to earn, to financially earn a living in this life. Um, that vocation is about calling. It comes from the word vocare, a Latin word that means to call. And vocation is less about what we do and more about who we are. Now, 
There's several implications to thinking about vocation in that particular way. The first is that it means that vocation is not necessarily tied directly to a job or a career. For some of us, our profession is a direct result of a sense of calling to that particular work. And so, for some, there is a very close link between an idea of vocation, our calling of who we are called to be, and our profession or what it is that we do. In ministry, for ordained ministry, particularly in the United Methodist Church, one of the things that is expected of us is to be able to articulate our call story, how it is that we have found ourselves drawn to the life and work of ministry. I know people in other professions who do so out of a deep sense of calling. We blessed teachers this morning, and I know a lot of teachers do so because of a sense of calling to that particular work. People in other professions may feel that sense of calling as well. But not feeling a sense of calling shouldn't negate that even for all of us, we can still live out a vocation whether it's directly tied to our work or not. And vocation can be lived out in any job setting because vocation is less about what we do and more about who we are. Another implication, which hopefully is freeing and life-giving to those of you who may be on one side or the other of your working years, And that is that vocation is not tied to a particular season of life. I think sometimes people struggle, especially as they are approaching or entering or now living into retirement, with a sense of loss and where am I to find meaning and purpose now because for so long it's been tied to a job or a profession. But the good news, my friends, is that vocation can be lived out in every season of life. And so from the very youngest of children, as they first begin to understand that God loves them and that Jesus cares about them and that they can live in response to God's love, to the very oldest of us, vocation can be lived out at any age. As I was saying that in the early service this morning, all of a sudden, Um, What popped into my mind was a dear woman, Mary Sue, who was a part of our congregation back in Lakewood Ranch before we came here to Trinity. And just this past week, Mary Sue celebrated her 98th birthday. And let me tell you that even at 98, Mary Sue is missing no opportunity to live out her vocation of spreading love with the people around her. She just, she can't help herself but to just love people because vocation is not fundamentally about what we do. It's about who we are. The last implication I'll mention is that vocation then is, when seen in this way, is not tied to success or at least not to the measures that we typically use to describe success. Vocation can be lived out without any acknowledgement or notoriety from the outside. So let's look for a moment this morning at 
this idea of vocation in relation to the verses that I read this morning from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he says this right after offering the Beatitudes, sharing the blessings to those who have responded to a call to live as God's people and to live quite often in countercultural ways. So you remember Jesus says, blessed are those who are humble and meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because even those will find themselves blessed by God ultimately. And so it is those who are living out the life to which God calls us to be who they are that Jesus offers the words, you are salt, you are light. And you know, one of the things about both salt and light is that when they are functioning at their best, they don't draw attention to themselves. Salt enhances what it flavors, but if you get too much salt, you know what that's like. It can be a very uncomfortable and unpleasant experience. Salt is meant to enhance what it flavors. Light is meant to illuminate the places where it shines. And in doing so, both salt and light are not meant to draw attention to themselves but rather to something else. In Jesus' words in this part of Matthew 5, what he says is, let your light shine before others in such a way that they will see your good works. The world should see the good works that we have to do, and yet it is not so that they will applaud us or so that we can draw attention to ourselves. No, Jesus says, let them see the good things you do so that they will give glory to God in heaven. And so our vocation is to point people toward God and to give people a sneak peek of the kingdom that God intends to be on earth as it is in heaven. Author and theologian N.T. Wright <clears throat> wrote a book about a decade ago entitled, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters. And in the opening chapter to the book, he talks about a friend of his, James, who as a young adult stumbled across a church one day and decided to go in, and he began coming back week after week, hearing a message that he had never heard before about God's love, God's acceptance, God's grace. And this person, Jesus, who was both divine and human, who came to make sure that we as human beings could, could have abundant life and to set us free from the things that bound us. And James heard that message and accepted it. And then he kept going back week after week and he kept hearing the message again and again and again. And it was a beautiful message, but at some point in a conversation with N.T. Wright, who he had met along the way, 
he asked the question. He said, he said, I get it and I'm so glad that I've gotten this message. And yet I, I feel like there's something, what am I missing here? Because is there something that I'm supposed to be doing between when I receive that message and then when I die at the end of my life and I get to go spend eternity with God, what am I supposed to be doing in the meantime? And Wright uses that story as an intro into a conversation about the character of people of Christian faith and how the answer is yes, in fact, there is something that we're supposed to be doing. And that something, again, has less to do with what we do, it has more to do with who we are and how we are being shaped as people who reflect the love of God and the grace of God in the world. Character matters. It makes a difference. When we extend grace, when we practice forgiveness, both the extending of it and the asking or request, requesting it, when we show compassion, when we offer kindness, when we celebrate others and their well-being, when we listen carefully, when we speak with honest humility, when we love without conditions, it makes a difference. And goodness knows that that kind of Christ-like character is desperately needed today in a world where far too often people seem bent on destroying or tearing one another down. The world needs salt and light to flavor and to illuminate. And you know, when we do get to the end, I think the conversations that Jesus is going to be most interested in having with us are going to be much less about the number of degrees behind our name or how many trophies or awards we accumulated or what our bank account said and much more about the places where we showed up as salt of the earth, as light to the world. In 2018, Pope Francis um, issued his third apostolic exhortation entitled Rejoice and Be Glad. And the whole document is filled with examples of what it looks like to live with Christian character. It's all about this idea of living into the holiness that God calls us to. And in one part of that, he focuses on celebrating what he calls the saints next door. He says, yes, there are the saints that we all know and the ones that we revere as a worldwide church. But then there are the saints next door, the ones who show up day in and day out to live in a way that reflects the character of God and to model what it is that they hope for the world. What about if you and I just focused on trying to be the saints next door each day? 
just to be who we already are, to live into the vocation that is ours as children of God, as followers of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us that doing this kind of life is not always easy. Sometimes it will come with cost. For him, it cost him his very physical life when he was executed near the end of World War II. But Bonhoeffer was persistent throughout the years of the rise of the Third Reich and as Hitler and his regime were, were seeking to, to compromise the church or to, to, to have the church adopt his plan for Germany and for the world, Bonhoeffer was persistent in communicating a message of the need for the church to be salt and to be light in a time that was very dark and very troubling. And the reason, Bonhoeffer said, is because this is simply who we are. Listen to this quote from Bonhoeffer. Now they, the followers of Christ, have to be what they are or they are not following Jesus. The followers are the visible community of faith. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Put it on a lampstand. Live out the calling that is yours, that is mine. Be who God is calling us to be as followers of Jesus. Why are we here? Jesus says to us, because you are salt. You are light. So let your light shine. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for first loving us so that every time we doubt, every time we question, every time we are afraid or uncertain, we can return to the good news that your love comes first. And we thank you for the gift of Jesus who comes to be the light of the world and to show us how to live as salt and light So give us courage, give us grace, that our lives might be lived out in the open where others will see them and give glory to you. Amen.